You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. First of all, the most difficult was Carl Malone because he said no to us repeatedly and, and never did it. The, the, the message that I got back that he had said was, why the F do I want to be in a documentary about Michael Jordan? Today's show is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. You've probably heard me talk about Roy and his great staff. I've worked with them for years, and trust me, not only will you get a very low rate on your home loan, but hey, there are no tricks, there's no nonsense, there's no extra charges at the end. And the thing that I love about Roy he does business face-to-face. His staff is kind of old-fashioned, and you're going to love it, folks. Trust me. For all of your home loan needs, check out Roy'sUmbrella.com. That's Roy'sUmbrella.com. My guest today is a seven-time Emmy Award winner. The last Emmy was Outstanding Documentary Series for The Last Dance. He also was the director of Andre the Giant. The Fab Five, the 85 Bears. He also directed The Last Dance, which unfortunately was not released to the public. And other than the fact that he's a diehard Red Sox and Patriots fan, I love the guy. It's Jason Hare. Jason, how are you, buddy? I'm great, man. How are you? I am doing good. You know, I was just talking with a buddy uh, about the 30 for 30 down in the Valley that never was released. And it was, I was, we were talking about, cause he was at the film festival, the Tribeca film festival for the yep. debut, the premiere of the uh, 30 for 30 down in the Valley. And we were talking about Kevin Johnson and the late David Stern. There's no way that the Sacramento Kings are in Sacramento without those two. And I'm going to talk, obviously, a lot about The Last Dance. But when you reflect back on all the work that you put in for that documentary and the fact that it was never released, how much does that hurt you? You know, I'm not lying when I say it doesn't. I know that people expect me to say it was crushing, glow, and all that. Here's the thing. It proved to me that I'm in this business for the right reasons because what I love about the business is telling stories the experience of telling those stories and making these films, the good friends that I have who make these films with me, the cameramen and editors and producers and PAs down the line. And then the people that I meet along the way. I mean, you are a lifelong friend. Carmichael Dave is a lifelong friend. I still talk to Kunal. Like these, these are people who, you know, I'm very, very lucky to do what I do and come across so many interesting people in so many corners of the, of the planet. So yeah, I, you know what? I, I wish for 
for the Sacramento fans and all that they've been through, I wish they got a chance to enjoy it and you, have their moment in the sun, you know. But but other than that, you know, you, you make these things and you move on. You live on the East Coast. You're an East Coast guy. Again, I talked about some of the other work that you've done. What gravitated you towards that story in the first place? Um, ESPN brought it to me, and I think it was more of a KJ biography when they brought it to me, if, if memory serves. Because this is back in 2013, I think, is when we first started talking about doing this. And then I talked to Carmichael Dave. There were two things that, that, that changed my mind on the whole story. I talked to Dave, and I realized, because I didn't really care about the Sacramento Kings. I'm a Boston Celtics fan, and I obviously I knew their history. But I thought, I'm the wrong guy for this. And then I talked to Dave and realized that this is a chance to tell a story about why sports matter. Why it's, why it's about a lot more than a ball going through a hoop. And a power of sports to galvanize communities and to bring friends and families together. I wanted to make a movie because I have friends who, who aren't sports fans and they don't get it. And I wanted to make a movie for them to say, this is why we care. This is why we sit there and, and cheer our brains out for these teams. It's not because we care so much about the laundry these guys are wearing. We care because they're, they bring us closer together with our families. So, and Dave articulated that so well um, that I went back to ESPN and said, can we open this up and make this more about the city of Sacramento's fight and why teams, even, even teams that are subpar, why they matter so much to community. So that was step one. And step two was when I saw the clip um, of you and Jerry at the end of the, what would that have been, the 15 season? 14? Right, right choking up on the air. And I cried when I saw that. And that's what I knew. I, I We, we, we got to make this. For those of you that are listening in different parts of the country, Carmichael Dave is a sports talk show host in Sacramento and was instrumental in leading the grassroots efforts, uh, which was uh, an incredible story. And it's, it is a shame uh, that you didn't get a chance to see it. All right. The Last Dance, an incredible success. It was just unbelievable. When you look back at that 10-part series, what was, the, what was the hardest part, the most challenging part of putting that all together? It was just a massive endeavor, I think, trying to figure out, it sounds ridiculous, but trying to figure out how to fit all of the story that we had into 10 hours or 10 parts. It's almost like, you know, a book should be 1,000 pages long, and they're telling you, well, it has to be, it has to be just 300 pages. And by the way, every single chapter has to be 30 pages. We, we had to hit 50 minutes on the dot with every single episode that we did because it was airing on, on network television. So that was difficult. There's a litany of stuff. And also, we had four multi-billion dollar partners, uh, each, each of whom are used to getting their way financially, logistically, creatively, you name it. So between the Jordan brand and ESPN and the NBA and Netflix, these are not people who are used to compromising uh, on vision. And then, you know, the fifth partner was me and my team. And we had pretty staunch beliefs about how this thing should be told and, and the structure. So there were a lot of challenges, but you know what? I kind of compare it to, uh, to like, if, if you go on a really, really bumpy flight, I remember one time I flew from, from Tokyo to New York and it was bumpy the entire way. I was in a middle seat in the back row next to a crying baby. <laughs> and every flight, every flight I've ever taken ever since has seemed easy compared to that. So the blessing of this thing is that it was a joy to make. There were definitely some, some really, really trying times. It was exhausting at times, just the, the effort involved. But uh, it's going to make everything else that I do seem a little bit simpler in comparison. 
Was there one thing in directing The Last Dance that just surprised the hell out of you, just blew you away? I don't know about blew me away because I, I had done, we did two years of research before we even rolled one frame of, of video or camera on anybody. So I wasn't shocked by a lot of stuff. I think that one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised by was Michael's candor, Michael Jordan's candor in his, in his, his ease to be around and his willingness to go places where I never thought that he would go. I mean, I, I thought if, if you make a checklist of the stuff that I, I wanted to talk about at the outset and thought we'll never get to go there, maybe I can do one of these things. It'd be great. So if we're talking about his father's murder, the gambling storyline, gambling accusations, the accusations that he was, you know, secretly suspended by David Stern, the rumor, the, the, the terrible unfounded rumor that he was somehow responsible for his dad's death, his toughness on his teammates and how hard he, he could be. To, to be around as a teammate, punching Steve Kerr in the face, the Republicans buy sneakers too. comment that has, that has followed him around politically for decades now. If one or two of those things we were able to approach, I would have been happy with it at the outset. And we, we went to every place. And that's because that's a testament to Michael and his, his willingness to jump into this thing with, with both feet. I shouldn't be surprised that he's, he's the Michael Jordan of documentary film partners, but but he was. He was. He, he came in ready to play, and, and he was great for us. While you were doing all of the interviews, were you aware of the friction with some of his former teammates that came out after the documentary? And how do you perceive all of that? I know that guys don't necessarily all get along together. That's in any workplace, in any office. If you want to call a locker room, an NBA locker room, an office, I mean, guys don't get along. Look at today's NBA and, and what goes on with Harden and Westbrook and, and you name the team. I can name you a friction based on a couple of players. I think that the, the, the stuff that's been publicized after the doc came out, one was Scottie Pippen reportedly being, I think someone said distraught or heartbroken Listen, I, I've been through this enough, and so have you. I'll believe it when I hear Scotty say it, and not sources say that Scotty's distraught. And Scotty indeed came out and said he wasn't at all, and he and Michael had talked, and they're fine. You know, so that was I just kind of I just had to read that and, and let it go. And then um, Horace Grant was unhappy because, and this was specifically because he disagreed with Michael stating so bluntly that, like, as, as if it were a fact that. Horace was the source for the Jordan Rule, Sam Smith's book. And I think that Horace took offense to that, that Michael said that during the doc. But of course, that doesn't get enough clicks on a website. What you have to do is do this blaring headline that, that Horace Grant says, the last dance is, is a bunch of lies. So that's what people grab onto now. It's like, oh, I, I, Horace Grant said that it's BS. And, you know, the, the narrative that this thing is not a true documentary because Michael was a partner and he had creative control. It's just, it's nonsense. I think Michael's a lot more concerned with lowering his handicap on the golf course than he was with the making of this documentary. And, and, you know, just like the rest of us, he was trapped inside in, in March and April. So he was watching final rough cuts then, but he wasn't any, any comments that he had. And there were a few, they were additive to the process. So it was, it was him saying, you know, there was a game, with this such and such happened, go back and see if you can find that clip because this will help you tell this story better. But it was never once from him or his people or anybody did they ever censor anything that we were trying to do or sanitize his image or anything like that. So it's part of the process, I guess. Jason, can you give us 
a peek, an insight into how your mind works when you do a project like this? You go from the last year and then, boom, we're talking about North Carolina and then it's the third. I mean, it's moving around. You're, you're, you're putting all the pieces of the puzzle together to come up with this masterpiece. It was just fascinating as a viewer to watch how you piece this together. How challenging is that for someone you're like yourself that is a director and does this for a living? This one was particularly challenging, like you said, because of the different storylines and the chronology of those storylines. I, I, I drilled into our crew, producers and editors and everybody, that, that chronology is our, our biggest challenge and our biggest enemy in this thing because we have to find a way to wrestle that to the ground or else people aren't going to know what we're talking about. So we decided pretty early on that it was going to be two converging timelines. And, and the way that I, I envision it and the way that I articulated it over and over to our editors was that we're on a highway. We're on a trip here with this dock. And the highway that we're on is the 97-98 season. And we're going to get off at exits along the way. And those exits are going to chronologically get us closer and closer to the end of the 97-98 season. But the first exit is going to start in 1984 when Michael arrived in, in uh, Chicago. And we'll tell how he got there. And then you know, the next exit will be uh, he wins Rookie of the Year and then he has the foot injury. And so we're getting closer and closer on those exits, but I told them you have to keep getting back to the highway because people need to know what this thing is about. And it's about the 97-98 season, which was called, as we know, The Last Dance by Phil Jackson. And that's why it's called The Last Dance, and that's why the chronological spine of this thing is the 97-98 season. So I used to tell them that on those exits, you can get off, you can stop to eat, but you can't stay overnight. You have to get back on the highway. I'd go in and, and review a cut, and there would be, uh, nine minutes on on uh, Scotty Pippen's backstory in Arkansas, and I said we're staying overnight here. We only have time for like four and a half minutes on that one. We stop to eat. Let's get back on the highway. We got to get back to ninety eight. So that was how I pictured it in my head, and that became a useful metaphor, I think, as we did this thing. About a year and a half before its release, you and I had lunch in downtown New York, and you showed me a couple of excerpts, and I was blown away at looking at the video. And you just said, you have no idea. This is going to be amazing. It ended up being the most watched documentary in ESPN history. Before you said you did about two years of research, before you even do one interview, before you even, you know, really have your sleeves rolled up all the way to your neck, you knew this was going to be must-see TV, didn't you? I mean, you knew you had something that could be, it blow people away, and it blew people away, and it was perfect timing with the pandemic, and I know how stressful it was for you to move it up when it was supposed to be released in June, but it all came just around perfectly, did it not for you? It did, it, and, and I say this reluctantly because of the circumstances under which people watched it. Obviously, the pandemic is 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 a harrowing situation that the world has been in for, for this entire year. But I, I definitely could not say that when we had lunch that day, a year and a half before it premiered and whatever that was, that I knew that people would watch it the way that they did. And I, it's not lost on me that people watched it the way they did because of the circumstances. All the sports fans were going to watch this. Now, remember, originally it was supposed to air the night before the 2020 finals. So it was, it was going to air on uh, June 2nd, 2020 and the finals were supposed to begin on June 4th. So two nights before, and then it was going to air on off nights. So between game one and two, between game two and three, they would check aboard the schedule like that. So ESPN, uh, it, it would be on ABC first and then ESPN. 
So I knew that all basketball fans were going to watch it. Sure, it's Michael Jordan. Who wouldn't watch? But we had a globally captive audience. Now, it didn't come out on Netflix domestically until July 19th, three months after it came out in America on ABC. But the rest of the world had it on Netflix every Monday morning after it aired on ESPN those nights. So, you know, it, it was it was crazy when we were doing press for this thing. Normally, you, you finish a project and then you're on to something else. And by the time it premieres, then you have to do a little bit of media. So the, the, the press demands were really, really stressful because we were still making the doc in March and April at our at our homes, in our apartments. You know what New York apartments look like. Uh, and those became our edit rooms, laptops and desktop computers and things that are not meant to be editing a, a global documentary. But I was doing press during that. And I would talk to, you know, people in Australia or people in Malaysia or people in France. Everybody was in their kitchen or their living room doing these interviews. It really hammered home to me how global uh, this situation was. You know, I, we're so I'm so accustomed to being, you know, an American and thinking, oh, it's only going on here. I wish we could be in Australia. They're probably all on the beach there. No, everybody was indoors. So that more than anything else, I'm very proud of the quality of the docs. Don't get me wrong. But more than anything else, it's that people had an opportunity or people had no choice but to sit inside and watch something. And the, there was no sports. It wasn't like we could, all right, we'll watch a soccer game from England because there's no American sports. or We'll watch a cricket match from Australia. There was nothing. So this was really the only sports globally that was new to anyone for those, for those five weeks. How many conversations do you think you had with Michael Jordan off camera during the production of this documentary and could have he had said, Hey, I don't want that. We're not going there. I mean, you kind of touched on this a couple of minutes ago, but what was that dynamic like between you and Michael? Non-existent. And I don't say that in a bad way. It's just that he, he wasn't involved on a, on a granular basis that way. He called me once in the edit room a couple of years ago. I forget why he even called. I was editing the, the shot that he hits over Craig Elo that episode. And he called and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm watching you put a dagger in the Cavalier's heart in 1989. And he said, yeah, I figured you'd be working on it. Like, yeah, of course, that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's what we're doing nonstop. But that was it. That was the only conversation off camera that, or, or non-production related. Like, I, I would see him a couple of times. I, I hung out with him before we rolled cameras just so we could get to know each other and he could be comfortable. And then we interviewed him three times for a total of nine hours. And we hung out, you know, before and after those things. But otherwise, that's the extent of my relationship with him. The Isaiah. And yeah, he did. He did have the opportunity if, if he wanted to. I'm glad it never came to that because I know that I would have lost that this fight if he if he said you got to take this out or take that out. He wields so much power with the NBA that I think that his his who knows we we never had to discover it. But I I think that whatever he wanted to to be in or out would have been in or out. The part of the documentary with him and Isaiah Thomas and all the years of the Bulls. Facing the Pistons, no handshake, the Olympics. That, to me, was absolutely fascinating. Was any of that new to you? Did you learn things while you were talking to Michael that you did not know about as it related to Isaiah Thomas? Yes. Well, I, I learned that, that, that he was very candid about his continued unhappiness, let's say, euphemistically, with Isaiah uh, and I thought that he would kind of, I don't know, take the high road and, and, and just, but he was very honest and said, and you're not going to convince me he wasn't an asshole, was his words, talking about the walk-off. 
when they beat them in 91. There's a couple of things. One is, this is, you asked before about the difficulty in making it, and, and it, this was one of the storylines that we couldn't put in there, but if you really want to examine their rivalry, it's, a, it's very, very deep with Isaiah that he was Chicago's favorite son. He was the, the pride of Chicago, went to Indiana, won the national title there. You know, everyone wanted him to be a bull. He became a piston, but he was from Chicago and proudly born and raised there, and everyone loved him. And then he came home one day and saw his nephew wearing a Michael Jordan jersey. This is a guy who used to sneak into Chicago Stadium with his friends to watch Bulls games when he was growing up. And now all of a sudden, he's public enemy number one. And his rival is the guy who's now Chicago's favorite son. So it was very, very deep with Isaiah beyond what happened between the lines. And then as far as things I didn't know, you know, I'm a Boston fan. And I vividly remember Kevin McHale shaking Isaiah's hand after they had passed the torch and beat them in, I think it was the 88 conference finals. And I said that to Isaiah, it's in the doc. So I said, you know, you guys walked off with Kevin McHale. He shook your hand. So isn't that a bit hypocritical for you to say that, that that's just how it was done back then? And he said, no, go back and look at the tape. And we did. Larry Bird is halfway down the tunnel and there's still like 13 seconds. Adrian Dantley shooting a free throw at the, at, at the line and Larry's in the locker room. So, it was difficult for me as a as a Celtics fan to have to point that out, but I thought it was a fascinating tidbit for the, for what we remember. It's kind of like the beat LA chant. Everyone knows the beat LA chant, right? Boston fans, the beat LA, beat LA. Do you know the derivation of that? I do not. It was when the Sixers beat us in the in the conference finals and went on to play the Lakers the Garden fans were chanting that at the Philadelphia 76ers to go beat L.A. Wow. It became, it became the rallying cry of let's beat the Lakers. But it, what it meant was good luck against the Lakers. Please beat them for us. So I love little, you know, factoids. The, the best sports documentaries to me are the ones that tell you a story. You thought you knew the story and there's, there's way more to it. So we were constantly finding little, little nuggets like that. You interviewed hundreds of people. Who was the most difficult person to nail down, show up, and talk to you? There were two, and I don't want to say difficult. I, I think reluctant is a better word. First of all, the most difficult was Carl Malone because he said no to us repeatedly and, and never did it. The, the, the message that I got back that he had said was, why the F do I want to be in a documentary about Michael Jordan? So <laughs> that was disappointing because he was clearly a huge cog in that story. There were two people that were really reluctant to do it one was reggie miller and the other was john stockton so reggie and, and it kind of hammered home to me how competitive all of these guys are now, michael's known for being you know the greatest competitor and most intense competitor ever and all of these guys are like that you don't get to that point without living and dying by these games and, and by what you do so you talk about larry and you know, Reggie Miller and all the guys on the Jazz, Barkley, all of these dudes, maybe they had different work ethics if you're talking about Barkley, or maybe they had different, you know, talent if you're talking about raw talent, if you're talking about Reggie, but they're all competitors. So Reggie, I thought at the outset of this thing, when we started booking interviews back in 2017, that he would be one of the first ones to say yes, and, and we'd do his and get him out of the way. We searched for him for like two and a half years or, or just bugged him for two and a half years. And 
we kept on getting behind the scenes. No, no, no. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. It's too painful for him to discuss because those losses still hurt. That that 98 season, he still thinks to this day that they were better than the Bulls. And you know what? They may have been. Their roster was, was incredible back then. It's one of the things that I, I forgot about was how deep they were and how close they came to beating the Bulls and, and going on. They probably would have beat the Jets. So finally in January of this year, he was calling a game on Turner and they did a promo for the last dance and which was supposed to come out in the summer at that point. And I, maybe it was Kevin Harlan. I forget who calls the games with him said, Reggie, you got to be in this thing. And he said, oh, I'm waiting for them to call me. I want to be in it. No one's called me yet. I said, all right, that's it. This is, this is ridiculous because <laughs> I've called, I've emailed, I've texted, I've sent a, a, you know, a carrier pigeon, whatever, however I can get in contact with this guy, Pony Express, nothing worked. So we put word out to his manager that, listen, if he continues to say no, we're going to have to put a graphic up that says Reggie Miller declined to participate in the making of this documentary, and he'll be the only one that we're doing that for. So he sat down and gave us a fantastic interview. I, I thought he was really, really strong in, in episodes eight and nine. He was a really important piece to that puzzle. And then Stockton, I think Stockton's just not a public guy. I had never heard John Stockton's voice before I had a phone conversation with him in February of this year. Never heard his voice. I've never like seen him interviewed or anything like that. So he called us. We got his email address and we emailed him and said that we really wanted him to be in. We're running out of time to do this. We had no idea how much, you know, how, how close it was going to be. So he called and said his words. He said, I just don't want to be part of a Michael Jordan puff piece. And I said, I promise you, it's not that. That's not what we're doing here. And I explained to him all of the different, you know, at that point we had interviewed 104 people. He was our final interview. I explained to him all the stories we were telling and it's 10 parts and, and, and it's really kind of a history of 80s and 90s basketball and it's going to be incomplete without your participation. We couldn't interview Jerry Sloan at that point, was not well. We, we, Malone had said no. Brian Russell had said no. And we didn't reach out to Jeff Hornacek yet, but I didn't feel like Hornacek represented the Jazz properly. And Stockton was our last, our last effort. So he said, okay. And we interviewed, the Rudy Gobert game was on March 11th this year. We interviewed John Stockton on March 10th. Wow. So the world shut down the day after we interviewed him. We just got it done in time. You talk about not being able to include someone in a documentary. You directed the Fab Five, and that leads me to Chris Weber. Um, and I, I, I know that people look at the Fab Five and they go, how can you do a Fab Five without Chris Weber? But if he's not going to talk, he's not going to talk. But I also know you were bothered because he kind of pulled the Reggie Miller. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, well, they didn't ask me. They didn't get a hold of me, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, when you do this for a living and you talk to a lot of high-profile people, you come across a lot of different individuals, a lot of different personalities. You just talked about Reggie. How frustrating was that trying to track down Chris Weber? It was hard. I, you know, I repeatedly called and emailed him directly and his agent directly but Jalen ultimately Jalen was going to be the one who was going to get that done or, or get an eventual no from Chris because they've been friends since they were 11 years old so it was very tough what happened was that we 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 did that that doc it was a two-hour doc we did that in four months just under four months from start to finish that was that was a sprint to the finish line because 
We started shooting November 3rd of 2010, and we aired it on uh, March 13th of 2011. But we didn't start editing until December, which is lightning fast. So it, it probably took years off of mine and the crew's lives, <laughs> the amount that, of work we put in. Because it normally takes about a year per hour. And we did this in four months for two hours. It was nuts. So I remember the Thursday before the Super Bowl in 2011, which I believe was the one where the lights went out in the Superdome. Mm-hmm. I think it was that Super Bowl. I get a call at two in the morning, right after they had gone off the air on their Inside the NBA show. And it was myself and an executive from ESPN and Chris. And now we're like putting the finishing touches on this thing because we're a month, we're a month to air and you're supposed to turn these things in like two or three months before so they can properly promote it. But we were, we were grinding. So this was like a last ditch effort. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll be involved. I'll do it. But I want, I want you to, I don't want to be a producer in name. I want to be an actual producer on this thing. I want you to come to Atlanta next week and spend a couple of days with me. We can do a couple of interviews my guess is they'll go about three hours a piece. We can do them at my home. I want to go through articles with you. I want to tell you my whole story. I was thrilled. It meant that we were going to have to stay up morning, noon, and night to get this thing on the air in time, but I was thrilled. So it came time to book a flight. You know, he, this was the Thursday night, and he said, come down on Monday. So that was the day after that Super Bowl that year. Come down on Monday. We'll do the interview Tuesday and Wednesday. Didn't hear from him on Friday. Didn't hear from him Saturday, Sunday. And I said to ESPN, I'm not booking a flight to go down. I cannot afford to miss one day of work if he's going to blow me off because we every single day counts right now. We had three edit rooms cranking at once to try and get this thing done. And finally, on that Tuesday morning, we got an email from his assistant that said that Chris has decided not to take part and he wishes you the best of luck. That's it. So that was it. I mean, we, we were I, – I, my guess, this is conjecture. I think that he thought this was like a standoff, like a like a um, like an old west standoff with two two cowboys with their guns drawn. I think he thought that once we got long enough into it and realized he wasn't going to do it, that that we would have canceled the project because we couldn't do it without him. And ESPN, to their credit, said, "No, we're doing this, whether he's on the train or not. The train is leaving the station." So it it was frustrating to to see him then afterwards come out. He went on the Dan Patrick show and said, they never called. They called me a week before it came out. I have the email from November of 2010 that he sent to the other four guys. And one of those guys sent it to me. And he said, guys, I would love to be a part of this, but I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm barred from participating in anything to do with Michigan basketball during this, these sanctions. And the sanctions were going to be lifted in 2013. So he said, I, I would love to, but I can't do it. I wrote, I replied all to Chris and the guys. And I said, hey, great news. They're not allowed to invite you to a game or anything like that. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. You're not barred from that at all. You can sit down for an interview and discuss the entire thing. So that's not part of your sanctions. Great news. Let me know when you want to do this and let's do it. Cricket. Until that February phone call. And then crickets after that. So for him to come out afterwards, and listen, I like Chris Weber. I loved him as a player when I was a kid. I think he's an enigmatic guy. I interviewed his dad one time when I worked at NBC when I was a PA, so I got to know his family a little bit. He's a complicated dude, and you know this much better than I do because he was in Sacramento for so long. But, you know, I, I don't have ill will towards him whatsoever. I wish 
maybe he truly does believe, maybe he, that's how he remembers things. I know for a fact that that's not the way it went. I know for a fact that week after week after week, I reached out and pleaded with him to do this. And then he finally said he would, and we never heard from him again. So that, that's how that went. Hey, if you lie to the grand jury, he can certainly lie to you. Uh, in my experience of being a pro sports, he's probably the most unreliable individual that I've ever been around. The, the, the sad part about this, when you do get him in front of you, when he does show up or when you're able to speak to him, he's probably – Unbel- he, he would be A-plus across the board in dealing with the public uh, if he does show up an event or if he does grant an interview. But getting to that point uh, is near impossible. You know, the whole shame to me about the Fab Five, because I, Jalen Rose, obviously because of his platform, is very outspoken about this. And he does not shy away. He is not at all trying to stay on the back burner. When he is asked about Chris, you can see the pain uh, on yeah. his face and in his body it, 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 he says, I love Chris like a brother, but he needs to come out and apologize. Just say, I'm sorry, and let's move on. And it's really, it really yeah. is a sad situation. It is pain with Jalen. I love Jalen Rose. He's one of my favorite human beings on the planet, and we've gotten to be friends you know, from, from that process of the Fab Five because he was, he was the lead producer of those guys. He was the one that got everybody together and helped so much with, with granted me access to interviews and home videos and things like that. It is pain. These guys go way, way back together. So it's not, I don't think there's resentment there. I, I think if Chris today came out and said, you know what? I was a kid. I was 19 or 20. I screwed up. I apologize. I do think that the school took advantage of us. I do resent that the NCAA makes so much money and, and, and kids back then and kids now make nothing, but I screwed up. And I, I, I apologize, and I love these guys like brothers, and I want to go back to being a family. It would be a joyous response from the other guy. Agreed. I think there would be such relief and joy. The, the funny part, the, the footnote to the story, the epilogue to the story, is that for, the, for Down in the Valley, I interviewed Chris. And I don't think he had any idea that I was the guy who did the Fab Five. But I did get to interview him for that, but not the Fab Five itself. You also directed the 85 Bears. I was working in Decatur, Illinois, during that time, covered many of the Bears games at Soldier Field. Just a, a, a bunch of characters, obviously, with Jim McMahon, the defense, you know, Buddy Ryan's 46 defense, and people saying he was responsible for the Super Bowl. You went into all of that. But just the, the personalities on that 85 Bears team, and I still have talked to Jim McMahon year after year after year at the Celebrity Golf Tournament in Tahoe. I've talked to Mike Singletary for many times. I was blessed on occasion to have a couple of interviews with Walter Payton. That experience, in a nutshell, was like what for you? Surreal, because they were... They were the indelible football team of my, that I remember as, as kids growing up. If, if I picked one football team that kind of embodied what the NFL was back then to me, it was the 85 Bears. We used to pretend that we were these guys on the playground, literally, in, in my school. I remember you would get to be Walter Payton or Mike Singletary or Richard Dent or these guys. So to be interviewing them and to be talking to them about everything that happened was it's one of those moments, and I've been really, really fortunate to have several of these moments in my career that you sit down and say, "How am I lucky enough to be to, to be the one telling this story to people?" It's just, it's it's a huge privilege to be able to do it. So, yeah, it was. It, and then we we had a great premiere in Chicago, and a lot of the guys came back, and it was just a really happy occasion. No, none of these stories are all happy. Some of them have sad endings. You know, Dave Duerson and. 
Uh, McMahon's struggles that he's going through now, Walter Payton's death. I mean, a lot of these things were sad. Buddy Ryan, of course, passing away and how much those guys loved him. But um, just a, a, a huge honor and tremendously lucky is, is how I'd articulate that. And then Andre the Giant. You directed Andre the Giant. Were you a big wrestling fan? I wasn't. No. I, I originally said no to that project. Bill Simmons called. And we had worked together on a couple of things, Fab Five being one of them, because he, he, you know, as everyone knows, started 30 for 30 with Connor Shell. He called and said, we want to do this thing, and, and I think you'd be right for it. I said, I honestly think I'm not your guy because I'm not a wrestling guy. And I, at that point, I thought that they wanted to do a wrestling doc as if it were a real, quote-unquote, real sport. You know what I mean? I, I thought sure. they were going to say, and then he wins the title, and then he loses it. I said, I'm very, I'm interested in telling a story about a seven foot, 500 pound guy living in a world that wasn't made for him and what it was like to go through that. And he said, no, that's the story we want to tell. So, so originally I said no, and then I was all in. And by the way, so they came to me to discuss Jordan in July of 2016. And obviously with that, it was uh, sign me up. But it took them so long to figure out the partners and how the pie was going to be split between all those partners financially, creatively, logistically, that in September of 2016, I agreed to do the Andre doc. We started shooting the Andre doc in April of 2017. We premiered it in March of 2018. And we had just started working on the Jordan thing when I finished Andre. That's how long it took. It took us two years to even get to the starting line on the last end. I can't even imagine how exhausting it was to put together The Last Dance and all the work. So if you tell me you're not working on anything right now, I would say you deserve it. But what what is next for you? Is there a next right now? Yeah, there, there's a few things. I, I wish I was at more liberty to say. If, if I'm happy to come back on and talk with you in, in a few months. Hopefully it'll be, maybe in six months, it'll be in person after a round of golf down in Miami. <laughs> but there are things I, I am less interested in doing something sports related right now and I don't rule it out and I'll always I hope if I get the opportunity I'll always be able to make sports documentaries but I'm, I'm more interested in doing something outside of that so the, the things that I'm talking about now are, are in music they're in true crime they're in social justice things like that and then there's there's a couple of scripted projects I've always wanted to to direct scripted projects and narrative films so I have an opportunity now that I feel like I have to kind of strike while the iron's hot to, to maybe dip my toe in those waters too. So definitely I, I took about five weeks off after the last dance was, was done. My girlfriend and I went away to the beach, to the coast up in Massachusetts. We, we had a house up there for like five weeks and I just shut my brain off and, you know, sip cocktails and, and read books on a, on a lounge chair. And then I was, you know, I get bored pretty easily. So I was I was raring to go. So I'm uh, I'm executive producing a few projects with the WWE right now that some of my staff and, and teammates are getting their first chances to direct, which is fun to kind of mentor them and just oversee things. And then uh, in the non-sports world, I hope to be able to announce a few things very soon. That is awesome. Well, as I said, one of my favorite nights ever was at the Tribeca Film Festival and the party that we had mm-hmm. after 
and to see the joy yeah. on your parents' face and to meet everyone yeah. that was so close to you and the jubilation and joy that that brought you, being there with a man that I just absolutely loved and respected so much and the commissioner, David Stern, and all the other dignitaries, that, my friend, is a night that I will never forget. And it, you're awesome to uh, come on the podcast, and I'll, I'll take you up on that. We will do that. When that time comes, we'll come back on and we'll talk about your next project. I greatly appreciate it, Jason, man. Uh, congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on the Emmy for Outstanding Documentary Series with The Last Dance. Uh, you, you deserve it all. Uh, you've earned it. You deserve it. And I could not be happier for you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, man. I, I will come back on, on on one condition. It's that you give me at least five strokes aside when we do play golf down in Miami. <laughs> yeah, you're always, you're always putting that knife in. I love it. All right, man. Appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks. Now it's time for a little Q&A. If you go to crowdquestion.com, you can ask me a question, and I'll answer it right here on the podcast. And, hey, if you're enjoying my podcast, do me a favor, would you? Give it a positive review. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word that Grant Napier is back. I'm having a lot of fun with these podcasts if you don't like that. But, again, thanks very much. Again, please give it a positive review. Be sure to subscribe, and uh, we'll continue doing this and having some fun. But I really appreciate it. Again, here are some questions from crowdquestion.com. This is from Danny. Hey, Grant, love the podcast. I like to listen while Bracing the cold on my walks in Clifton Park, New York. I've enjoyed your tales of attending different sporting events throughout the years. Do you keep any mementos memorabilia from the games you've gone to? If so, are there any that stick out or have significant meaning? Thanks. Keep up the great work. I am not into memorabilia. However, I do have something. Okay. I have two items in my possession that I think are pretty cool. The last regular season game ever played at Yankee Stadium. I was there. It was a Sunday night, and I was sitting in the upper deck. I scalped a ticket outside for 200 bucks, and it was so neat because I was sitting in the upper deck on the first base side, and I'm by myself, and I start talking to the guy sitting next to me. and. He had just flown in from Hong Kong, all right? He was actually a resident of the U.K., but he lived in Hong Kong, and he actually had flown from Hong Kong to New York, did the same thing I did, bought a ticket out on the street for a couple of hundred bucks because he had never been to Yankee Stadium and wanted to be at Yankee Stadium. But anyway, the seat in front of me had a little hard plastic seat, had a little kind of hole at the top. And I ripped off a piece of the seat, and I still have it in my possession, including the ticket from that game. Another item that I have is an unused, because you got to remember, back in 1994, they ripped the ticket and gave you a ticket stub back, all right? There was no scanning. There was anything like that. I was at Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, Rangers and Canucks, Madison Square Garden. And because I got into the game early with Christopher Mad Dog Russo, and I've shared that story, but... I had someone go to, we'll call to get my ticket, somebody that worked for Madison Square Garden. And since I was already in the arena with Chris and Mike Francesa listening to their afternoon show leading up to Game 7, I still have that Game 7 ticket unused. I guarantee I'm the only one that has that. Great question. All right. 
Here is a question from Eric. With NBA basketball changing so dramatically over the last 20 years, how has coaching had to evolve in regards to style and personality? Love the podcast. Great question. Coaches now have to communicate with their players differently. They can't be a boot camp sergeant, all right? That doesn't work anymore with the millennials. You got to put your arm around the guys. You almost have to be their friends. You almost have to be kind of their parent in addition to being a coach. I have definitely noticed that. That is a very good question. Charlie, Sports Illustrated thinks the Kings may have struck gold with Tyra Holly, or rather Tyrese Halliburton. What do you think? I don't pay attention to people that try to forecast the draft because the reality is nobody knows, okay? Here's what I do know about Halliburton. He does look good, but everyone said this was a weak draft. And guard is the most important position in the NBA. In a weak draft with guard being the most important position, why is it that 11 other teams passed on a guy that others are saying the Kings struck gold with? They may have. They may have. We don't know. But I always go back to that. And again, there were mistakes made in every draft. We all, we get that. We know that. But think about this. Weak draft, plays guard, and he went all the way to 12. Maybe he ends up being the best player on the Kings in three or four years. That's the beauty of the draft. This is from Ross. How do you handle hate and judgment that you receive and not let it get to you? That is a fabulous question. Hate is a really strong word. I don't know why anybody would hate me for my sports opinion, but unfortunately there are. You know what, Ross? Early in my career, it bothered me a lot because early in your career, you want everybody to love you. You want to have everyone support you. And then you realize that that's never going to happen. I mean, there are people that think that Joe Buck's terrible and he's the best thing that Fox has. There are people out there that don't like the way Jim Nance announces football. I can go on and on. As you are in this business long enough, you realize that you cannot control and you have no effect over how people are going to perceive you and what they're going to say about you. So it does not bother me. People that know me, that's what I'm concerned about. People that know me, I care what they have to say. People that don't know me, people that never met me, people that don't know anything about me, doesn't bother me at all. Used to, but it doesn't anymore. That's a great question, Ross. That's a great question. All right. From Dan, what podcast do you listen to? I had never in my life listened to a podcast until the pandemic hit. And then because the gym was closed, I started going out for long walks. And instead of listening to music, I started listening to podcasts. And I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was outstanding. And again, it had nothing to do with sports. And I was listening to Dave Ramsey because I think Dave is a tremendous communicator. And I learned a lot as it relates to finances and things of that nature and money. So those are two that I used to listen to every day, Dave Ramsey and Joe Rogan. But how about that? Until the pandemic hit, okay, I had never listen to a podcast. And now look at me. I'm doing a podcast and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And again, if you want to ask me a question, just go to crowdquestion.com. Easy to sign up. Ask me a question and I'm happy to answer it right here 
on the podcast. It's time for Rant. 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 Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, plumbing repair, bathroom plumbing, repiping for Kitech and copper pipes. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. New Works Plumbing has experienced technicians on call 24-7. For all of your plumbing needs, check out newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. Would someone please explain to me how Carson Wentz is still the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles? I've watched the Eagles play a lot this year. They're a bad football team. And Carson Wentz doesn't even look like a rookie. He looks worse than a rookie because look at how well some of the rookies are playing right now. All right. Look at Justin Herbert. Look at Burrow before he got hurt. All right. Look at some of the good games too has had. They look a hell of a lot better than Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz looks terrible. Now we know that they drafted Jalen Hurts. You can't tell me that Jalen Hurts wouldn't be better than Carson Wentz right now. But Doug Peterson's stubborn saying, nope, we're not going to make a change. It's not the message I want to send to my football team. Not the message you want to send to your football team. And listen, Doug Peterson's won a Super Bowl. So he's, he's running the show there. And, you know, maybe deservedly so. He's done a tremendous job in Philadelphia. I like him. I think he's a hell of a coach. But I don't understand how you can have Carson Wentz continue to be the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. He looks awful. He looks uncomfortable in the pocket. He looks indecisive. He's making bad decisions. And, oh, yeah, by the way, the Eagles keep on losing. They have three wins. Now, it's not all Carson Wentz's fault, but Wentz has been dreadful, absolutely awful. You got three wins, and only because the rest of the NFC East stinks, you stay with Wentz because you think he gives you the best chance to win. There's nothing that I've seen this year. There's nothing that I've seen that would lead me to believe your best chance of winning is with Wentz at quarterback. He is atrocious. Philadelphia needs to make the move and make it now. And that's my rant for today. Hey, again, folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, do me a favor. Give it a positive review. Be sure to subscribe. Share with your friends. And thanks, as always, for listening. And have a fabulous Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy it. Be safe. Have fun with your loved ones, and we'll do it again on Friday. As always, thanks for listening. If you don't like that, with Grant Napier.